0: Earlier this summer, I was riveted by the story of the Titan submersible. Maybe you were too. Five people died on board after it imploded during a voyage to visit the wreckage of the Titanic. Now, as much as we were all captivated by that news story and its tragic ending, there are still many of us who are fascinated by the mystery of the deep ocean and want to see it up close. What's down there? Well, that's a question that journalist and author Susan Casey spent years exploring, And she's written a series of books on the animals and objects in the deep to try to explain. Her latest book, The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean, was just released. And she tells me the sea has always fascinated her.
1: I I actually can't identify a genesis for it. I've just always had it. Uh, Even as a really young child, uh, we just look at a body of water and Think of it as uh, sort of a one-way mirror. And if you went through the surface, you would be going through the looking glass into a kind of a parallel universe. Yeah. Um, it's, I've never, I never developed it. I've always had it. And, uh, since the world is 95% as a biosphere comprised of deep ocean, curiosity really dictated to me to be able to answer the question, what's down there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to that point, you've said you have been drawn to the ocean for as long as you can remember, just wondering what's down there. I think that that's an innately human thing. I think a lot of us feel that way, um, you know, maybe just like you since since childhood. But why do you think the deep ocean has been such a mystery to us? And why do we know so little about it? It is the realm that we know the least on our own planet by far. Uh, and
1: I think there, there are usually complicated emotions when it comes to the idea of going on a journey downward, inward, into darkness. You know, our, as a species, our primary sense for navigating the world is vision and our, you know, uh, hearing and all those things are not what will get you anywhere in the deep ocean. So there's, you know, the the sense of the unknown, the sense of traveling downward into darkness, these things were difficult to surmount for, I think, many people and still are. But um, you know, we're comfortable rocketing into space. We're comfortable with the idea of expanding our reach, of heading upwards. You know, but going inwards is, uh, is a more difficult journey and psychologically and certainly from a standpoint of even engineering because at the very bottom, the deepest part of the ocean, the pressures of the ocean are about 16,000 pounds per square inch. So there are mm-hmm. very few vehicles, in fact only two in the world that can take people to the full depth of the ocean, uh, up to almost 36,000 feet. So it's just, it's, there's a lot of challenges to overcome before we can see it and in yeah. uh, very few people will get will have the opportunity to visit it although I think hopefully in the future that might become more possible but um yeah so out of sight out of mind and we can project all of our fears and superstitions and um you know just discomforts onto this realm which is actually completely magnificent
0: yeah you said a moment ago you know down into the darkness and I think that that's the part that has terrified me over the years and, and why I, I can't even scuba dive <laughs> to this day.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, the, so people often hear the statistic, the earth is covered 70% of the earth's surface is covered by ocean, but it's actually the statistic that I like is, as I mentioned, just a moment ago, if you think of earth as a three dimensional living space as a biosphere, 2% of all of it is the terrestrial habitat that we live on. 98% of it is ocean and 95% of that is deep ocean wow. meaning the water's below 600 feet so the idea of darkness being this uh, realm that we can avoid or you know doesn't somehow represent the earth that we know is just a kind of a limitation for us because the earth not only is it an ocean planet it's a deep ocean planet mm-hmm. and even though it appears blue 95% of it is the biosphere exists in darkness all the time. Wow. So, you know, it's aside from bioluminescence and many, many creatures in the deep have the ability to light themselves up, but relatively speaking, it's, it's darkness.
0: Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, deep ocean means about 36,000 feet. What's the deepest you've gone, Susan? Oh, well, let
1: me just back up there. Deep ocean is everything below 600 feet. Ooh. So there there are actually four layers to the deep ocean. The, the 600 feet is where the sunlight zone essentially disappears. And then below that is a, a layer called the twilight zone, which is be- between 200 and 1,000 meters, or about 600 feet to about 3,300 feet. Beneath that is another realm uh, called the midnight zone, which is from 1,000 to 3,000 meters or about 3,300 to about 10,000 feet. And then below that is the abyssal zone, the largest ecosystem on earth, also known as the abyss, literally. Mm-hmm. And that's between, um, 10,000 to 20,000 feet or about 3,000 to 6,000 meters. And then there's a, there's a, uh, a, a zone even below that called the Hadal zone named after Hades and his, you know, mystical kingdom of the dead. And, uh, that's from 20,000 to almost 36,000 feet.
0: Wow. So yeah. You have written several books about the, the people, the shipwrecks, the animals, the like sharks and dolphins within America's waters, right? Talk more about the focus of this book, The Underworld.
1: Well, all, yeah, in, in um, the, the, the Underworld is a journey into the deep, many journeys into the deep ocean. Uh, I made two and, um, many other characters in my book had have, have made many and so it is a chronicle of the all the a narrative chronicle of all the uh expeditions that have gone on not only recently but how it how deep sea exploration began and it's basically uh a sort of a I mean it's twenty thousand leagues under the sea nonfiction edition. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. You started off with uh, a map. It's called the, the Carta Marina, and it covers mm-hmm. uh, the sea monsters that historians believe lived in the North Atlantic and North Sea and the Norwegian Sea regions. Is there truth, first of all, Susan, to the, the monster stories? I mean,
1: back the, that map was drawn in 1539, and I started with it because it was this sort of... Uh, snapshot of that era's perceptions of their, their fears and their beliefs about what lived in the deep ocean and what they were going on was mythology, religion, superstition, fear. Um, You know, they had no knowledge. They didn't know how deep the ocean was. They didn't know what the seafloor was made of. They didn't know what most of the animals were that washed up on their beaches because uh, on occasion, say, imagine being a medieval farmer and all of a sudden you stumble across uh, the stranded body of a sperm whale so you've got this 50 foot long animal with seven inch teeth and you know to them it was of course there were monsters mm-hmm. it was the ultimate unknown but as the centuries progressed and science became a thing and instruments were developed to be able to um, investigate various unknowns in the natural world l- l- less so the ocean but it Uh, it eventually happened. They began to realize that there was this, uh, there was water, there was life, profound life throughout the entire water column. It was, it was completely unique and adapted to this really unusual set of, uh, pressures, evolutionary pressures, uh, so that you would find fish with enormous eyes, you would find Creatures that were really long and completely gelatinous. You would find creatures that could light themselves up like a Christmas tree. Wow! So, you know, as the centuries progressed, it went away from the, the notion of here be dragons or here be monsters. And wow, let's go down there and find out what's going on. Uh, but the first human descent into the deep it was only in 1930. And it was only into the, you know, the, the uppermost part of the deep ocean, the twilight zone. But it was an important milestone. Because now you had somebody who had actually seen this with their own eyes.
0: Let's talk more about the the Ocean's Twilight Zone. I found that to be the most interesting section of of the book. I was fascinated. Um, I mean, it's rich with biodiversity. There's so much going on there, but I feel like there's a lot that we still don't understand. So just explain why the Twilight Zone is so important when it comes to food supply and, and things like carbon dioxide even.
1: Yeah, so the the Twilight Zone is um I called it the Manhattan of the Deep because it has more marine creatures in it than all the other regions of the ocean combined. And a lot of them are small There, in particular, there are a lot of very small fish with very big teeth, and people often see pictures of these uh I mean, I think they're adorable they they're often shown as how fr- examples of how frightful the animals in the deep ocean are yeah uh they have giant eyes and giant teeth, and yeah, they're uh, kind and of they're, scary looking they are scary, but they're like they will fit in the palm of your hand, and they're just i i mean as I said, I think they're completely adorable and wonderful, but there are trillions of fish in the twilight zone and uh, the majority of all known jellyfish species will can be found there and they are incredibly uh, unusual to look at as well and very ancient creatures lots of lights lots of body shapes so there's just this matrix of life in the twilight zone and it is when you go down into it you understand that you are not in space because everything around you is alive. Okay. And you can see it zipping around and you can see the microorganisms moving in the through the water column. Uh, and so one of the reasons why scientists are racing to understand more about this particular realm of the ocean is because it is uh first of all, it's it's so many creatures live there, but also every night trillions of animals rise hundreds and maybe even as much as a thousand feet closer to the to the surface where they can eat uh, phytoplankton single-celled marine plants right and and because of course where there's no sunlight below the air the sunlight layer of the ocean there are no plants in the deep ocean it's all it's all animals and minerals mm. and um so they will eat this phytoplankton swim back down and excrete it or get eaten by other animals. There are larger animals as well, uh, then excreted and eventually these sort of carbon particles will end up in the sediments of the seafloor where they're sequestered for years and sometimes even centuries or, or eaten on the way down. And ultimately it, it, shuttles carbon from the atmosphere into the depths. And it's part of the reason why the ocean can has such an uptake for absorbing our excess heat and our excess uh, carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels. So they call it the biological carbon pump. Uh, it's a very complicated process, but these little tiny animals manage to, um, shuttle carbon equivalent to America's total annual emissions oh, wow. every year. So it's a really important set of systems that are, you know, making the ocean, helping the ocean regulate everything, helping us, um, helping buffer at least some of the effects of climate change. And it, it isn't surprising when you hear that it, with all that biomass in it, people, countries are looking at dragging nets through it. And even though we couldn't eat those tiny little fish, the notion would be that we would grind them up and use them as pet food, nutraceutical oils, and fish meal to feed the farmed fish that we're now forced to breed because we trawled nets indiscriminately for so long. So like every other ecosystem, it's in jeopardy. Um, all of its services benefit us. But so, so there's a real rush on right now and a real emphasis on it in, in marine science to be able to really understand the, the regulatory, uh, uh, functions that it's carrying out and all kinds of other things. It's okay. just a really, it's in flux all the time. So it's a hard place to study, yeah. but there's some really cool technologies that are helping.
0: So you mentioned earlier, Susan, that, uh, I mean, you want to see others be able to do or more people be able to do this, go out and see the deep ocean for themselves. I mean, is it something that you you recommend? Oh, God. Oh, my God. If if
1: you have a chance, if you're not claustrophobic and you have a chance to get into a certified submersible, um we could talk about the Titan if you want. It's very extreme outlier. These are very safe machines. And. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea because really some people are claustrophobic, but um, it will change your perception of the planet you live on. I think the very best thing, if I could have one wish for ocean awareness and for people to understand how important and how magnificent and how integrated the deep ocean and the ocean in general is with everything above, it would be that everybody who wanted to get into a submersible would have the opportunity to do so and at least go into the twilight zone. Mm. Um, I, you know, I wrote in the book, I felt as though I was meeting the earth for the first time.
0: Wow. And it's
1: just people expect it to be scary and gloomy and grim and it's magnificent and life altering.
0: Let's, let's talk about the Titan submersible then. I mean, you also just wrote a piece for Vanity Fair magazine and in it, you say that many in the deep sea exploration community, believe that dives like that one that was organized by the company OceanGate, that they're, quote, reckless and they're often dangerous. So talk more about that. Based on your experience, how could a tragedy, a tragic accident like that have been prevented?
1: Well, let let me just make very clear that I don't think dives to 4,000 meters are dangerous and reckless in general in the right equipment. Um, you know, the submersibles, there are only about six submersibles in the world that can dive to 4,000 meters or below 4,000 meters. So there aren't many vehicles. They're usually, they're owned by nations or institutions in most cases. Um, the U.S. has one, the U.S. Navy has a research sub called the Alvin. The Alvin has made more than 5,000 dives with a perfect safety record. That's the case with all of the deep sea subs. Mm-hmm. Um, in 50 years prior to the Titan, there had never been a fatality in a man, submer- in a deep sea submersible. So the engineering is incredibly robust. The, the most important, uh, aspects of engineering a deep sea sub are that it be able to withstand the pressure and the most and come back. I mean, who, what good is it to dive if you're not going to come back? The, the sphere is a critical shape for, now you can go in a submarines, like military submarines are, they're shaped like, kind of like the Titans, cylindrical shaped. They don't go very deep. They may go a few hundred feet or slightly deeper, but deep sea subs that are going to 4,000 meters, they need, if they're taking people, they need to be shaped as a sphere because the sphere is the only shape that distributes the pressures symmetrically. So there's no weak spot on the, if it's a perfect sphere, there's absolutely no weak spot. Um, And you can just get a sense of what I'm talking about. If you imagine standing on a soda can, the cylinder has a weak spot and the Mm -hmm. pressure is not distributed symmetrically. But on top of that, the Titan sub was constructed of carbon fiber filament, which is not an accepted um, material for, for deep sea um, engineering because it's, it tends to fail catastrophically mm-hmm. and suddenly, and it isn't predictable. It hasn't been used enough in the deep ocean. It has been used for some instruments. Um, and it does have some advantages in terms of it's light, it's strong, but it's strong when the pressure is coming from the inside as opposed to external pressure. So there would have to be a tremendous amount of testing done and formulations like really fine tuned before. It would be possible to say, yes, this could, this kind of sub could go to 4,000 meters and Oceangate didn't do that work. But every other sub in the deep sea space is certified in the equivalent of peer reviewed mm-hmm. by an independent marine classification society. And it's a very lengthy, very rigorous process and it costs a lot and it takes time. And Oceangate just didn't do that. So yes, a lot of people in the deep sea submersible community, which is quite small, very tight knit had reached out to Ocean Gate to, like, help, try to help, actually, in the beginning, but then also to sort of warn, but there was nothing that anybody could do beyond that because mm-hmm. there wasn't, you know, there's no laws necessarily. There, there are some, you, you sh- that's why they were in Canadian, leaving from a Canadian port and going into international waters because if you have a commercial sub in uh U.S. territorial waters, it must be, certified or classed i see but wow. um yeah there's so lots of steps a,
0: here yeah. lot, lot, not enough uh you know regulations and just a, a lot well, of well there,
1: there's yeah well there's lots of that but it's kind of like part of what you would do if you wanted to have a safe operation you would do this everybody has what it it's just very bizarre what yeah. ocean gate did and it's really important to differentiate that between what everybody else does who operates in the deep sea space right
0: So the Underworld Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean, what's your overall message then that you're hoping to communicate to your readers?
1: That the world is a lot bigger and more mysterious and even more beautiful than you realize. And that everything that happens below is inextricably connected to what happens above. Uh, And there is... (laughs) I always compare it to it's as if we live in this magnificent mansion with thousands of rooms and in every room there are treasures and artworks and animals and historical artifacts and we've only bothered to look in a couple of the rooms so I think we should definitely make a point of looking in more rooms
0: Susan Casey's new book The Underworld Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean is available wherever books are sold. Susan thank you so much Thank you it's my pleasure This episode of Reset was produced by me and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Meha Ahmed. Have you signed up for the Reset newsletter? Well, if not, you are missing out. It's the perfect way to start the day right. You'll get the news that you need to know and a preview of what's coming up on the show. Just go to wbez.org slash Reset News to sign up. That's all for this afternoon. We'll talk tomorrow.